0: Luke chapter 7 tonight. Luke chapter 7. Hopefully, if you want an outline, you've got an outline. We try to lay them around on all the tables. Probably each table has an extra or two. So tonight we're going to be looking at four different scenes out of the ministry of Jesus. And I want to start... "...with the healing of the centurion slave." And i just like to read these ten verses. I'm going to do this a little bit differently tonight than normal. So Luke writes, "...after Jesus had finished teaching all this to the people, he entered Capernaum. A centurion there had a slave who was highly regarded, but who was sick and at the point of death. When a centurion heard about Jesus... He sent some Jewish elders to him, asking him to come and heal his slave. When they came to Jesus, they urged him earnestly, for he is worthy to have you do this for him, because he loves our nation and even build our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you to come under my roof. That is why I did not presume to come to you. Instead, say the word, and my servant must be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. He turned and said to the crowd that followed him, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So when those who had been sent returned to the house... They found the slave well. First of all, I want us to note here the character of the centurion. Notice a couple things. First of all, his pursuit of Jesus in finding Jesus was not for himself. It was for his slave. And think about then the selflessness in that, but also the compassion in that. Here's a centurion who is regarding a slave. Most slaves, if they were sick and died, nobody cared. This guy cared about his slave enough that he wanted to find anyone who could help his slave to feel better. You also notice his character in his humility even though when he sent this delegation of Jewish elders to Jesus to ask Jesus about healing his slave, that he says, look, e- even though they've said I'm worthy and you know I've done all these good things, I recognize I'm not worthy. I- I've done nothing to deserve your grace in this. It's not like I deserve it. In fact, I didn't even want to presume to come to you myself. So we see here a man of character, a centurion. We also, just a sort of a sidelight, it's very interesting that, because Luke obviously is going to devote a whole book to the early church, the book of Acts, and seeing Gentiles and Jews come together, but isn't it interesting here that there's seeds of cooperation between Gentiles and Jews already? Here's a centurion who's a Gentile who helped them build their synagogue, loves our nation, loves our people, treats us well. You can already see Jew and Gentile through Christ coming together and cooperating with one another. So we see a man of great character, someone that certainly would be a great example for us to follow. A man of humility, a man of compassion, a man of selflessness. You'll also notice something else that really stuck out to me, and that is this concept here in the outline of faith and hearing. It's very key when the Bible says in verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus. That's huge. That's how he knew this is the guy I need to talk to. Because he heard about Jesus, and then he believed in Jesus. What he heard. That's exactly what Paul says in the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing by the Word of God. Our faith is grown. Our faith is strengthened. Our faith is increased as we hear the Word of God. He heard about Jesus. And in hearing about that, he considered it, He pondered it, he grasped it, he comprehended it, and he says, I believe it. And that's how this whole thing then began to unfold. If you and I are looking to increase and strengthen our faith, all we have to do is get into the Word of God and let God speak to us. Notice also the exalted view of Christ that he had here. Again, he says at the end here, He says, Lord, all you have to do is speak the word. Wow, that that says a lot in verse 7. Just say the word. You don't even have to come. In other words, his faith was so great, even the centurion, that he believed that Jesus could heal from a distance. Up until this point, all of Jesus' healings took place while Jesus was physically present. Now the centurion believes that Jesus is so great and has such power and authority that all he has to do is say the word. He believes in the powerful word of God. And notice he says, all you have to do, Jesus, is say the word and my servant must be healed. Key word, must. In other words, Whatever my servant has, whatever sickness, illness, disease, it is under your authority. And then he goes into explaining, I get authority. I'm in the army. I'm a soldier. There are those over me. There are those under me. And I get the idea that because of who you are, everything is underneath you. There is nothing outside of your authority. You are over all. And all you have to do is say the word. Tonight, I just want to encourage each of you to just keep trusting in the Word of God. The Word of God is powerful. The Word of God will strengthen you. There is nothing above the authority of God's Word. We need an exalted view of Christ. Help us, Lord, to get our eyes off of our circumstances and off of ourselves and off of what's going on around us, and help us, Lord, to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And let's all have an exalted view of Christ, like the centurion. You'll notice that because of this exalted view, in verse 9, Jesus was amazed. He marveled at the centurion's faith. One of the things I that struck me when I... Study the Gospels, particularly for this, is when you pick out this word amazed or marveled, there's only two things that the Bible says Jesus ever marveled at or was amazed at. And first of all, isn't it cool that Jesus can be amazed at something? (laughs) I mean, He's God, you know. But He literally, he, He is amazed when people place their faith in Him as much as the Centurion did. I thought to myself, what a challenge. It's like, boy, are there times in my life where maybe I amaze Jesus because of my faith? Because I'm sure there's a lot of times where I don't because I'm not putting my trust and confidence in Him like I should. But there's only two things that the New Testament says Jesus ever marveled at. Faith or belief and unbelief. He marvels at people's unbelief or lack of faith and He marvels at people's belief or faith. That's the only two things the Bible ever says Jesus marveled. That's how important it is to God. And so we see here a real emphasis on faith. In fact, that's why I wanted to leave this passage with this thought at the end of verse 9, when he says, I tell you, I've not even in Israel found such faith. In that word found, that means, guess what? Jesus is looking... For people of faith. He's looking for people who will trust and put their confidence in Him. And this is a concept that runs throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament it says, Hey, God's eyes run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Looking for those whose hearts are perfect towards Him. Who who have faith in Him. He's looking for people of faith. And hopefully as God looks over our lives and looks at us, He's able to see people of faith. And even if we're struggling in faith, maybe it's even God, I believe, but help my unbelief. But take me where I am right now in my faith and in my trust and in my confidence and help me to trust you more. Help me to believe in You more. Help me to be more like the centurion who had such an exalted view of You and of Your Word that he believed that You were capable of anything and everything. So what a great scene here, the healing of the centurion's slave. Then notice next, we have the raising of the widow's son. Verse 11... Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the town gate, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, who was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the beer and those who carried it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. So the dead man sat up and began to speak. Jesus always messed up funerals. Can I just tell you? (laughs) And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear seized them all and they began to glorify God saying a great prophet has appeared among us. And God has come to help his people. This report about Jesus circulated throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. I'm sure it did. Couple things there. First of all, I want you to see the two crowds converging at the beginning in verse 11 and 12. You have Jesus and his disciples, his followers, a rather large crowd, the Bible says, going in this direction, and they're going to converge with this very sad, awful scene of this mother, and her dead son, and this large crowd coming out from the town to bury him. And they're going to meet. And the reason why this is important, we're going to obviously see this even more as we move through, but the point I want to make here is that there are going to be people that God wants you and I to converge with. And maybe right now you even have somebody specifically, you know that God is bringing you and this person and their life sort of in convergence. Maybe not. Maybe you don't know of someone specifically right now, but I guarantee you this, there's going to come a time real soon where you're going to be led by the Holy Spirit at least even maybe you don't even know if it's a particular person yet, but you're going to be led in a certain direction that's going to end up converging with someone or some group or some on the other side of that because God's going to want to bring you and them together. And primarily He wants to bring you and them together for the same purpose that Jesus wanted to converge with this funeral procession. You'll notice there, first of all, the compassion of Jesus in a world that is hurting. The Bible says when he saw her, but the word in the Greek literally means to care about. And the word compassion, I've shared this with you before, literally means to be moved in the bowels and intestines. That's what it literally means in the Greek language. That's compassion to where it it literally gets us in the gut. And the Bible says that Jesus had this kind of compassion on this woman when He saw and perceived and considered what was happening. When God brings us into convergence with people who are hurting and in need, God wants us to have compassion. He wants us to model the kind of compassion that He had. He wants us instead of going by so quickly to be able to truly see what's going on around us and to care about what is going on around us in people's lives. Enough to stop and maybe be used in a compassionate way. Sometimes, obviously, in a situation like this, we're not going to maybe be able to raise somebody from the dead. But we might be able to go and cry with somebody. We might be able to go and just love on somebody. And that's still compassion whenever we're moved enough in the gut to be able to do something in some tangible way. You also notice there the hope of Jesus in a world of despair when he says in verse 13, do not weep. Now, this would seem cruel to a grieving widow, especially when it says it was her only son and she's a widow. It sort of reminds us of how bad off she's going to be because her husband is dead and now her only son is dead. So financially and so many other ways, this woman is in a world of hurt. And so if Jesus would not be bringing hope into this, it would actually be cruel for Him to say, don't weep. And we know that this is... Not what Jesus means at all because the Bible teaches us that it's okay to grieve. It's just don't grieve as those who have no hope, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But the reason why Jesus is saying do not weep is he's trying to get this woman again to see that this isn't the end here. I've got the last word. I'm the one that defines each and every situation. So have hope. And that's the kind of hope that Jesus wants to bring into our lives. That's the kind of hope that we need to bring into other people's lives whenever God converges us with them. That we need to remind them, this isn't the end. God hasn't had the last word yet. Let God define this situation how He wants to. No matter what it is which leads to the final point there, the power of Jesus in a world of weakness. There was no way any of these people were going to be able to change this situation. But Jesus could. Jesus had the power to raise this young man from the dead. And I I can't... You know, again, like last week, I, I always, especially in the Gospels, I try to put myself in the story. I I try to imagine Jesus there walking with His followers and me being somewhere in the crowd and seeing these two crowds converge and seeing this funeral procession and seeing Jesus go over to a dead man and say to him, young man, get up. And he gets up. I mean, What would be going through my mind at that point? But what it shows us is the power of Jesus Christ. That even one who has breathed his last, one who is lifeless, can be brought back through the power of Jesus Christ. And so, we need to be reminded of that we need to be reminded in a world of weakness, in a world where maybe we are incapable or powerless to do anything, Jesus is the Almighty God. There's nothing too hard for Him. There's nothing that is beyond His power to do. And when God converges us with others, especially who are in need and hurting and in despair and who are in a condition of weakness, we need to remind them about the power of our Lord and of our God. Which is why Paul could say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The raising of the widow's son. Then we get next to Jesus and John the Baptist. Follow along, verse 18. John's disciples informed him about all these things. So John called two of his disciples and sent them to Jesus to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? At that very time, Jesus cured many people of diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and granted sight to many who were blind. So he answered them, Go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. The poor have good news proclaimed to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. want to stop there. This passage should encourage all of us because no matter how strong of a believer we are, there's times in our life where we struggle with doubt where we have questions. And here's John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is in a situation he never thought he would find himself in. And it's not like John the Baptist wasn't a strong believer. In fact, Jesus later on in his commendation is going to say, there's no one ever been born of a woman that's been greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was clear cut in his testimony of Christ. When when his life converged with Christ, he pointed people to Christ and said, look, behold, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He knew who Jesus was beyond a doubt. But now he's in prison, getting ready to get his head lopped off. And maybe John, like us many times, when we... Knew God called us to something and we dove into it and we, when we started to follow Jesus' calling, we got into it and all of a sudden things started going really wrong. And we probably started to question the call and God, are you sure I got this right? And God, are you sure I'm the one? And, and, and maybe even we start to question God, are, are you the one? Is what am I am I believing? Is it real or not? And that's exactly where John the Baptist was. He probably didn't expect that his life was going to end so soon in the way that it did. And so his his faith was shaken. He struggled with doubt, and so he questions. He sends this delegation and says, Jesus, are you really the one? Or we need to look for somebody else. And Jesus' reply is simply to go back and tell John all that I'm doing. And the reason Jesus does that It's because everything Jesus listed here that he was doing was a confirmation that he was the Messiah based upon the Old Testament prophecies and scriptures. The Old Testament said when Messiah comes, this is what he's going to do. This will be the confirmation. This will be the signs that the one who's doing these things is truly the anointed Messiah of God. So Jesus says, just go back and tell him these things. He needs to believe so I just want to encourage you tonight. Maybe you're not right now going through a season of doubt or questioning your faith or whatever, questioning God. God, are you sure you know what you're doing? But we all will go through those times. If John the Baptist went through it, we will go through it. And in our struggle of faith, God is just going to point us back to the word of God and back to his character and back to who he is and say, Just rest there. Just trust in what you already know. Then Jesus, beginning in verse 24, begins to commend John the Baptist. And it's very interesting to me that Jesus assures John the Baptist through his delegation that he sent, but then when the delegation goes back and they're no longer there, in a sense, behind John's back, Jesus commends him. And Jesus says that no one, born of a woman, verse 28, is greater than John. Yet I want you to notice this. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. See, John was sort of the last of the Old Testament economy. The New Covenant had not been cut yet because Jesus had not yet died and risen. The temple veil had not been torn in two. So, John was still part of the Old Testament economy. And simply what Jesus is saying is that when I usher in the New Covenant... The advantages and privileges of the new covenant will far outweigh those who had the greatest privileges in the old covenant. That's you and I. Even though we might think, oh, I wish I was back in the Old Testament times when God spoke to people through burning bushes and did all these fabulous wild miracles and and all of that, God would say to us, you have more of a witness than those people ever did. Plus, just because they saw miracles and signs didn't lead them to faith. He says, in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, you have the permanent indwelling Holy Spirit. They didn't. You have the completed Word of God. They didn't. They just had partial. There's a lot of advantages. And so that's why Jesus says, those who are least are greater than John the Baptist simply because of when he came on the scene. Then you'll notice those Jesus' is rebuke to those rejecting God's purpose. I want to pick up on that before we get to the anointing here. I want to go down to verse 30. However, the Pharisees and the experts in religious law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. They refused to surrender or submit to John's ministry. And therefore, Jesus said, they have not done what I purposed for them to do. Then he goes on to say, to what then should I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? He said, they're basically like bratty children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to one another. We played the flute for you, yet you did not dance. In other words, we wanted to party, but no, you didn't want to party. Then he said, okay, we want to have a make-believe funeral. We wailed in mourning. He said, yeah, you didn't want to weep either. You you didn't want to embrace that either. In other words, basically what Jesus is saying is it didn't matter what we did. And then he goes on to prove it because he says, John the Baptist has come eating no bread, drinking no wine. And you said he has a demon. You didn't accept his ministry. So the son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunk, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You didn't like my way either. In other words, what Jesus is simply saying is, don't live to please people. Because you're not going to be able to please people. And he says, you, you, can, you can have a, this kind of method over here. And, another, and, and what Jesus is simply saying is, within scriptural boundaries, obviously, there's going to be diversity in the body. Jesus' way of doing ministry and John's way of doing ministry were two different things. And Jesus is simply saying, you didn't like either one because it wasn't your idea. See, the problem he's saying with this bratty childlike generation is if they didn't come up with the idea, then they were going to reject it no matter how it came to them. And that's why then he ends this passage by saying wisdom is going to be vindicated by our children. God's way is going to be proven right in the end. Especially by those who apply God's wisdom to their lives. Jesus and John the Baptist. Finally tonight, look at this great passage on the anointing of Jesus. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went into the Pharisee's house, took his place at the table. Then when a woman of the town who was a sinner learned that Jesus was dining at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfumed oil. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping and began to wet his feet with her tears, she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and anointed them with the perfumed oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is who's touching him and that she's a sinner. So Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He replied, Say it, teacher. A certain creditor had two debtors, one who owed him 500 silver coins and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Jesus said to him, You've judged rightly. Then notice, turning toward the woman. So in other words, turning his back to Simon. He says to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of greeting, but from the time I entered, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfumed oil. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, are forgiven. Thus she loved much, but the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with Him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And He said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Great passage. Just have a few minutes to touch on it. First of all, I want to get to the setting because it it may seem strange to most of us in our Western culture. This Pharisee invites Jesus over to dinner and all of a sudden you've got this sinful woman who comes into the house. When, when, When... teachers like Jesus would be invited over to someone's house think of it more like a block party it, it was like anybody cuz he was they were teachers and so people whoever wanted to come could sort of it was sort of like an open house so get that that that's the picture here and then we see this sinful woman's worship so much about this sinful woman's worship as an example of ours. First of all, notice her worship was wordless. Worship doesn't have to be anything I say. Her worship was at the feet of Jesus. Her worship was not easily hindered. She knew when she went into that house of the Pharisee, she knew there were going to be people who talked about her. She knew there were going to be whispers behind her back. But she didn't care what other people were saying and doing. She was so in love with Jesus. She so much wanted to just pour her love on Jesus. She didn't care about other people. Oh, that we could have that attitude in the local church today. Where people stopped nitpicking with each other and was so in love with Jesus, they didn't have their attention on what's going on around them so much. Her worship was emotional. It's okay to get emotional. She was weeping because of what Jesus had done for her. So much about this woman's worship Her worship was costly. This alabaster box of perfume that she brought and that she poured out on Jesus was probably the most expensive, costly thing she had. She was giving Jesus her very best because of what He had done for her. So there's so much in this sinful woman's worship that is a great model and example for us. But then I want to get for just a moment here to the thoughts of Simon, the Pharisee, because obviously the Bible says he never spoke these words, but because Jesus was God, he knew what Simon's thoughts were and Simon's thoughts were, Ooh, you know, for, for people like Simon, it was all about physical separation. Ooh, there's a sinner. I'm not a sinner and I've got to stay away from that sinner because they're going to contaminate me somehow. And we've just seen a great picture here in this passage about God wanting us to converge with people so that we can give them compassion and hope and power and love. No, certainly never to compromise what we believe or to compromise who we are, but not like the Pharisees did it. And notice that He was so caught up with who she used to be that He couldn't see who she had become. Wow! So many struggle with that today. That because of someone's past, and maybe you even struggle with that with yourself or with someone else where you can't get past their past or you can't get past your past. That's exactly the Simon of the Pharisee. All he was going to eternally label her as as the sinful woman. Not who she could become in Jesus Christ. And of course, he says to himself, you know, if, if Jesus was really a prophet, then he wouldn't be even allowing this woman to touch him and do this. Of course, Jesus knew who she was all along. And that's why Jesus, in a sense, rebuked Simon by evaluating her actions this way when he gave Simon the story. And he's basically saying to Simon, Simon, here's the problem. For folks like yourself that are so self-righteous and so proud, you don't think that there's anything wrong with you. You don't see your depravity. You, you don't think there's anything to be forgiven in your life. So when, when, when the Bible talks about God's forgiveness and, and, and your sinfulness, that is totally lost on you. So no wonder there's real no love there. I mean, when you get this picture of what's going on here, you've got this woman who's just fervently pouring out her love, and, and she's doing it, not even caring about what's going on around her. And Simon is sort of this cool, aloof Pharisee who's sitting there just inviting Jesus over because he sort of wants to check him out. There's no love there. And Jesus says, I'll tell you, Simon, the reason why she's loving me so fervently. Because she understands her sinfulness. She gets her depravity. She understands the depth of her need and the magnitude of God's grace. And therefore, that's why she's loving so fervently. Because she gets it. I don't care what kind of past you and I have. You could be the best moral person in the world from the time you were born. According to the Bible, we're still all depraved and all fall short of the glory of God. And all of us, no matter where we have come to Christ and who we've been before we came to Christ, all of us need to recognize and acknowledge the magnitude of our sin. And how far short we fall from the glory of God and the magnitude of His grace in the cross and in Jesus Christ. And when we do that, Jesus says, then the love will take care of itself. Because the love and the passion and the commitment and the courage and all of that that this woman showed was born out of that theological understanding. I know who I really am. And now I know who he really is. Takes care of itself. Which leads me finally to Jesus' words to the woman. See, this woman, I think because she had come to show her love to Jesus, I think she had already had an encounter with Jesus and she had already known that she was forgiven. Jesus sort of, Implies that in verse 47. But isn't it cool that he says to her again in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. Because could we ever hear that enough? I mean, to hear from Jesus Christ, Jeff, your sins are forgiven. Wow. What great words. Put yourself in that verse tonight. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, put your name there, whatever your name is. And hear Jesus say to you, your sins are forgiven. And then he says to her in verse 50, so that no one will get the idea, maybe especially based on verse 47, that she's forgiven because of her works. No, Jesus says, Your faith has saved you. It was because she believed in who Jesus really was that she came to Jesus knowing. He's the only one that can forgive. He's the only one that can restore my life. He's the only one that can take my broken life and put it back together. And then it was out of his love and forgiveness and compassion for her that then just stirred within her such a fervent love to live the rest of her life just pouring out her worship to Jesus. And his final words to her are, Go in peace. Here's a woman, probably for most of her life, was never at peace. And now he's telling her, I want you to order the rest of your life in my peace. An inner tranquility, a sense of well being and contentment. That's what I want you to order your life with from here on out. Go in peace. What great words to hear from Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Tonight, I'm going to end a little differently by giving you some homework. I promise it's not anything big. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home and think about these four scenes. The healing of the centurion slave, the raising of the widow's son, Jesus and John the Baptist, and Jesus' anointing. And here's what I'd like you to do I'd like you to think about which one of those four scenes that we looked at tonight spoke to you the most and why. Which one of those four scenes that we looked at tonight spoke to you the most? And why did it speak to you the most? Now, obviously, each one of these spoke to me, and I'm sure they did to you. But was there one out of those four that really hit you? And if so, why? What is it about that one scene that God wanted to draw you in, especially to that scene, and have you consider that? Let's pray. God, thank You for these wonderful scenes from the life and ministry of Jesus. God, I I am so excited about going through the Gospel of Luke and us coming together on Tuesday night and looking at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Being reminded of who He is and of who we are and what we have and who we are in Jesus Christ. And I pray tonight that This scripture was such a great encouragement to everyone here, a great reminder, uh, an opportunity, Lord, for us to be refueled and filled back up with your spirit and with your word. And Lord, I pray that as we go home tonight and consider these four scenes, is there one that you especially want us to focus on? And if so, Lord, is there something in that scene that you want us to really grasp and get? And apply to our life. Lord, really allow these scriptures to sink down deep into our hearts and minds. Allow us, Lord, the time to meditate on these scenes. To think about them over and over again. And allow your Holy Spirit to continue to to surface things and show us things even out of this tonight that, that might continue to be encouraging in the days and weeks ahead. Thank you, Father, for these faithful folks who come out every Tuesday to hear your word and to praise you and to be together. Continue to grow us, Lord, for your glory and honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, thanks for being here. We'll see you on Sunday.